Hey, podcast listeners, the Orthodox Center for the Advancement of Biblical Studies is sponsoring its annual biblical symposium at St. Elizabeth Orthodox Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, March 8 to 9, 2019. This year's keynote speaker is Dr. Robert Miller from the Catholic University of America. Meet Father Paul Tarazi and other scholars who will present and discuss papers on biblical exegesis and language. Join Father Mark Bulos and Dr. Richard Benton for a live recording of the Bible's Literature Podcast. Engage with others like you who are committed to biblical studies for all who have ears to hear. Register online at ephesusschool.org. You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. These past few episodes, Father Paul has begun his careful exegesis of the book of Genesis, paying special attention in the early part of the series to the details of Genesis 1 through 4. And as we were listening to last week's episode, Richard and I approached Father Paul about the possibility of doing an excursus on something that's very important to his scholarship, something he refers to often function or functionality. Father Paul will explain that it is central, that if you don't grasp functionality and how it works in Scripture, it's impossible to hear the content of Genesis. This week's episode is the first part of Father Paul's discussion of this term, which will hopefully illumine his reading of Genesis on the program. I am happy to introduce Father Paul on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. Let me begin with something I mentioned quickly when I introduced my series on Genesis 1 through 4, which is Arabic grammar. I stress Arabic because among the Semitic languages, and obviously I'm speaking about the Semitic languages, which... The West, even when I read their grammars and so on, they don't get it. They don't get it. Let's go for grammar. They end up by calling the two conjugations of the Semitic languages. Obviously, they are referring to Latin, which most people don't understand. So you end up with a perfect and imperfect. Well, when someone in the West hears this, he said it has only two conjugations and both of them are in the past. And you have to spend time to explain to them, even my professors you know, in Romania had to explain that perfect means that the action is finished, which means perfected, whereas imperfect means the action is still running. My comment on that is that the future is silly because you can't speak about it. It's always iffy and on hope. You can speak only on whether one is eating an apple, or one has finished eating the apple. So it has not only its own logic, according to me, powerful logic. It's with Greek that we started speaking about past, present, and future. So one has to keep this in mind, especially when dealing with scripture. So that, I hope, will function as an intro to my comments on functionality, especially in Scripture. I mean, it's all over the place in literature. 
But in scripture, it becomes highly central of the essence. I mean, you cannot perceive and understand scripture if you're not serious about these things. So let me go to the grammar in Arabic. I remember I mentioned something I keep repeating to people, but I doubt if they follow what I'm saying. I mean, they hear it as most of the students hear me. Curiosity. Oh, that's a nice idea. I'm not interested in ideas. I'm not platonic. I'm inviting the people to make what I'm saying to them functional because it is there whether they like it or not. And it is the fact that since we do not have what we call present tense, then we don't have am and are and is. There is no I am, you are, he is. We don't have this in Semitic languages, period. Now, to conclude, as I said, that the Semites are stupid would be silly. That's not the way. The Russians do not have it. But in Arabic grammar, it was so developed because they dealt directly with the Quran. In other words, the Muslim, there is no God out there. There are no statues. It's the text that conceives for you God as it is written. And that's what I stressed in my rise of scripture. So coming to what we call in English subject, like Peter is big, Peter was big, Peter ate an apple. Ask anyone in all three statements, Peter is parsed, which is grammatically analyzed as subject. Now, in Arabic, without going in detail, if you're interested, you can tell me go in detail, I'll go in detail. We have three different terms to refer to Peter in Peter is big. Remember, we don't have the is, we say Peter big. But the second one is was Peter big. And the third one ate Peter the apple. The verb comes before the subject in Semitic languages. When you parse it already in the second grade, you have to learn it. You have to call each of these Peters by their function in this phrase. For the time being, I'm not going to detail what is the function and so on. As I said, we can go over that because it's very interesting per se. But it doesn't matter for our case. For our case, what matters is that while someone in the West parses Peter in the same way, it is the subject, it is an assumed basis for the statement, which is, you know, ethereal, platonic, that it's the topic with which we start, okay, like the archi of the sentence. But in Arabic, we have different names in parsing for this Peter, and we have different names or terms for big in the first instance, big in the second instance, and apple in the third instance. It's amazing. So big doesn't function like the apple. And big doesn't function in is big as it function is was big.
I hope what I said is clear. Obviously, people would like to know more, but I said I would like to delve into our scriptural topic. But keep this in mind. This is where I'm coming from, that there is a big difference and the decision is made by the functionality. Okay, is how Peter functions and Big and Apple functions that the grammarians had to find a term that would reflect this function. Whether it's perfect or not is immaterial for our discussion, so long as my hearers remember that an Arab perceives things already differently than you perceive it while hearing it. And the Bible was written in a Semitic language. Whether the Jewish grammarians were able to find this parsing terminology or not is immaterial, again, because it's a term, that's all. But in their mind, they perceive differently Peter in each of these three statements. So that is the huge umbrella. And when you are trained in that, then you start something which is very hard in the West, not to assume. Remember in my last podcast where people say, in the beginning, God created. Oh, God, we all know what or who is God. How do you? Let me repeat that. (laughs) Because you don't have God, you have Elohim. Let me repeat that. It's very important. How can you decide what Elohim is when you don't know anything about him? It's created by scripture. And the fact that it's created will be soon reflected in the fact that Elohim is a plural. Other times God is called by the singular, El or Eloah. But what complicates the matter is that Elohim can mean in the sentence and thus can function as an actual plural, which means you have to translate it as gods, and thus you're talking about the other gods. But it is the same word. And what complicates even more the matter in the Bible is that later you will see that sometimes this Elohim is used with a definite article, Ha Elohim. And again in this case, Ha Elohim could be the gods and could be the one God, the scriptural God. So already you cannot say, well, uh, we all know what God is. You don't know. You have to wait for the text and how it is phrased. And just to whet the appetite of my hearers, that issue I discussed in detail in my rise of scripture, because at the beginning of chapter six, you have a jump, a play between Elohim and Ha Elohim, while referring to the same person, which is the scriptural God. So you have to ask yourself, if you're honest, the question, Why is he moving from one to the other? Which he does also at the end of chapter four. So again, I hope 
my hitters are patient enough to really follow my introduction that invites him to realize that discussing functionality, obviously the way I understand it, is not something secondary or you can decide while sipping your tea in the morning and texting with your friend, trying to say, what do you think? And what, uh, I mean, it's not a Facebook blog. It is what it is. And we have to submit to it. There is no other way. But once one is open at least to this possibility, give it a chance, then one realizes, and I'm going to give a few examples to show how it works. Let's begin nicely with something we all know, David. David, which is Dod in Hebrew, and then it was vocalized as Dawid to sound like Mashiach and so on. Anyway, is the three letters the D and the WA, which is the W and the D, and the W works either as what we call consonant and what we call vowel. And the proof of that is that it is vocalized in the book of the Song of Songs, where we have the highest incidence in a few chapters of this triliteral, it means beloved. That's what it means, all the word beloved. So David is there all the time. Obviously, it's not David, which is in your mind. Is the textual David. Is Dod. But then, Dod, in other instance, is the maternal uncle, like Laban. So you have to ask why. Why it's the same word. And here, again, that for me is an extra proof. I didn't deal with this in my book because it lengthens and complicates the matter. What I said in my book, I believe it's enough. But listen to this. Why the maternal uncle and not the paternal uncle? Well, the maternal uncle becomes very important as the maternal uncle of the Prophet Muhammad. It's because the marriage is not individualistic as in Hallmark cards and then the young people get married and then they realize they married a tribe or a clan <laughs> because that's the actuality. There is no, I marry the one person I fell in love with. You fell on your face. You didn't think because that person did not exist in eternity and is so it's part of a deal. That person came from at least two people, according to our genetics. You need a male and a female. But then there is something more than that. The maternal uncle is important because through the mother, you are including her tribe. That's why in those times, marriages were Sociopolitical deals, people tell me, ah, this is only in the East. My dear friend, just review the history of the West in Europe and elsewhere. And I'm not talking about 
a farmer living by himself in southern France. I'm talking about real deals, meaning the weddings of princes and princesses and royalty and so on. It's a big deal. You know that. I don't need to enter into it. becomes important to have the maternal uncle on your side. The paternal uncle is assumed because you're living in that tribe. But the maternal uncle becomes a backing for you. And thus, if he becomes the beloved or you become his beloved, it may change the matter. So when you start rereading the issue of the wedding of Isaac, you begin to hear it differently, that it was a deal that Abraham wanted to make. And it was so important that when Jacob fled, he fled to that same uncle, which is Laban. It's amazing. But then let's go to functionality. This Laban functions differently in the story of Isaac as he functions in the story of Jacob. So Laban is not Laban. It's the Laban of each story. And Laban is again itself very important because it means milk, which means that the one who feeds you and so on. Now people tell me, well, you're complicating the matter, Father Paul. It's nicer, as a student told me, to imagine that Chloe is a real woman in the church of Corinth. My dear friend, the Greek picked up immediately in those times that Chloe means the budding grass. And Paul was talking, chose this name to impress upon you. Your church is just budding, beginning and already you're splitting it between Paul and Peter and Apollo. It's ridiculous. What are we talking about? That, to my mind, and I hope to my hearer's mind, is much more powerful than speaking about the womanhood of Chloe. It's a woman, people. Uh, we have to relax and understand these things. And notice that this is how you speak when you are a parish priest. You don't single out one person and so, no, no, there is a community you have to deal with. And to end with David, again, David is not all the time David, the same person who was a shepherd and becomes a king. Because in the first story, David is not good very clearly. But then at the end, in Isaiah and Jeremiah and especially Ezekiel, he's all good because he is what we refer to as the new David. And let's not jump immediately to Christ. You know, in my book, I showed that the seed in Genesis 3.16 is not Christ. It is Seth. But anyway, that's an aside. So here we see that in especially Ezekiel, David is not only shepherd, but he is a shepherd who's not a king. Remember how chapter 34 is a harangue against the leaders of Israel, shepherds, the kings of Israel, that they are not really shepherding. And only in this sense, David 
the shepherd as ruling. You have the verb malak at the end of 34. He rules as a king would rule, but as a shepherd would. And how could it be otherwise when the whole chapter revolves around the point that God is the shepherd and he rules as a shepherd? Remember Psalm 80. He sits on his throne above the cherubim as a shepherd. He is the shepherd of Israel. So to start talking about David as though, you know, you have a painting in the European Middle Ages, it's a catastrophe, you know, and you go and watch a painting of someone. I mean, uh, you know what people did with the painting of Leonardo da Vinci suddenly that woman, what that? I don't know. Perhaps this is what Leonardo da Vinci intended. I have no problem with that. Dan Brown. But is this what the text is saying? That's a different matter. If it is, then that's fine with me. We'll find out. But if it is not, we have to be very careful and just understand. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.